Welcome to Anesthesia Deconstructed, science, politics, realities. Listen in as medical professionals join industry expert Mike McKinnon to discuss the latest science and medical advancements, the effects of our political climate, and the realities of today's changing healthcare environment. Let's get started with your host, Mike McKinnon. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, on the podcast today, we've got a, a great guest and very close friend of mine, uh, Joseph Rodriguez. He is a CRNA, just finishing his doctorate, and a business owner here in Arizona of a relatively large anesthesia company serving rural and uh, urban facilities as well as ASCs and hospitals. And uh, welcome to the podcast, Joe. Go ahead and give me a little bit more information on yourself. Oh, sure. Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on. This is going to be fun. Um, yeah, so I'm um, like, like you said, my name is Joe Rodriguez. We've been at CRNA for about a decade now, and I am a uh, one of the, I guess, uh, one of the founders of uh, a group uh, called Anesthesia Partners in Management. And we have uh, an Arizona branch called Arizona Anesthesia Solutions. And uh, like you said, we're, we're all across the state, and I think that's what makes us unique. Uh, we serve, obviously, with a Based in Phoenix, Arizona, but we also have uh, substantial operations in Tucson, Arizona, also in Prescott. We actually have one contract out of state, and that's uh, something we've been looking at more in the past year. And then we serve another a number of smaller communities all throughout Arizona. So, especially in terms of numbers, we've really gone from you know just your mom and pop shop to something where we're trying. To make a, a positive impact on the on the specialty, right? In addition to you know everyday clinical practice, we we really try to be a dual purpose company in that way, where we're benefiting the community, um, but also um, you know running a healthy business. So that's uh, that's us in a nutshell. It certainly takes a lot of work. So let's talk a little bit about that. Both of us have started or been involved in anesthesia companies, and mm-hmm. uh, you've certainly done a lot from scratch and built one up with your other two partners, uh, Mr. Ali Bagai and uh, Mr. Randy Quinn. And so what did that start out like? How did that genesis begin? And then how did it build? Because I think a lot of times listeners who, you know, they have this amazing thought, you know, hey, and I know you and I get these messages every day. Uh-huh. How do you, I've got this place that they've got a horrible contract there and they really want better anesthesia services. And they asked me if I could do it. And that I think is the key right there. That's the beginning of the first step is getting the opportunity, right? And sometimes you know, opportunity just happens, falls into your lap. So how did you guys decide to come together as partners? What did you do in the initial stages, first of all? Sure, sure. Yeah, great question. So I think when I get asked this question, I usually think about it in two separate perspectives, right? So for the average listener, you know, when we say, hey, you're a business owner or you're a group owner, that can mean a huge variety of things, right? You can have a group with three people, that's very stable and, you know, relatively not complex to run and you know each other and you trust each other and it's simple and it's straightforward and it's really not all that different from just having any other job, right? There just happens to be nobody else involved. And way at the other end of the spectrum, you have, you know, groups like YPS or USAP with hundreds or even thousands of clinicians, right? And the skills involved in those at the two ends of the spectrum, are, it's a huge difference. Right? It's an entirely different set of skills, right? So when people ask me, how did you get started? The first, you know, in the context of I want to get started as well, 
right? Which is oh, usually yeah. why people ask that question. It, yeah, right. I, the first question I said, what do you really want? Right. Figure out what you want along that spectrum. And in, in those discussions, we get into more detail. So once they figure out what they want, I try to kind of tailor the answer from there. Uh, so just, just to, just to stop you there for a second. So basically you're asking them, Hey, what is it you're looking for? You're looking for a job or are you looking to be an owner and a business builder? Right. 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 And because at, at the small level, it's not really that different than just, you know, a regular job that you go to and you do a good job and you go home. Right. Exactly. Right. But if you're doing on the business side, it's an entirely different animal. Yeah. And that's part of the reason I like it. It's challenging. It's creative. There are, you know, often no clear solutions. There's just, you know, less bad solutions. Right. Um, and then as far as our business specifically, you know, we've always been very much, I mentioned at the early on, a dual purpose company where so we were CRNAs, we were making changes at the state level, very involved in our state association. And one of our big motivating factors was, you know what, we want a place where we can live out our values and put these changes into practice, right? And so that was the initial reason why, and that's always been with us. Even as we've added physicians into the group, it's always been in this idea of everyone doing everything they can to benefit patients. Let's get away from these restrictions. Let's maximize value, right? So that's kind of, that's where we started. And that plays a role in how we've, how we've evolved. Specifically, um, you know, I got a call from a office that needed coverage. Just because I was out there in the community, I'd go to conferences, you meet people, you know, somebody gave me the call. I was there the next day. I got there, just like you said, Mike, you know, they were like, you know, our anesthesia coverage is an absolute mess. Can you guys help? And can you guys was me and Allie. And of course I said, you know, the answer to the question was yes. What's the question? That was the approach I had at that point. And uh, we were just going to make it work. So this is kind of, it's interesting because it tells a story about ownership as well and, and trust. So, you know, the administrator said, we have like these 40 shifts that we need cover over like the next two or three weeks. What can you do? And uh, so we meet, Allie and I, uh, and Randy soon thereafter, we immediately got on the phone. We're working the phones. We're going to get all these cases covered. The problem was, we didn't have any money, right? And you can do the quick math, 40 shifts. I mean, we were talking anywhere from thirty-five dollars to $60,000, depending on how long it went. And I was just an individual, relatively new out of school. I don't have capital, right? So we actually went to the providers. I remember writing the email, sitting down on my computer. This is going to be this great new thing that we're going to do together. And I said, hey, if you guys want to be in on this business, all you have to do is and I thought we were going to get a great response. Yeah, I don't know. It's no big deal. And all being together and blah, blah, blah. Uh, well, I was wrong. I was super wrong. Nobody responded in the affirmative. <laughs> and they were like, no, basically like, pay me. And I think, you know, we were a new. I mean, they didn't want to work for free. No, they don't want to work or even delayed payment. Right. And because they just yeah. wanted to get paid. And there's absolutely nothing wrong. There's a lot of things right about that. Um, so we, we, I actually, all of us, we put in. Uh, thousands of dollars. We emptied out bank accounts. I actually got a few days before my mortgage was due. And that's when I was like, uh, you know, guys, I, I need some money to pay my mortgage or I'm going to be in big trouble here. And I didn't tell my wife about it at the time. She only found out because she heard me lecturing years later and she heard me tell the story and she's like, you did what? Um, so that was, that was it. That was the start of our group. And because of our mission, right, to try and make the specialty of anesthesia better to do these things differently. We've continued to grow because growth facilitates that mission, right? It's actually been less lucrative 
Like we, you know, we found some really lucrative contracts or, or places early on where it would just put in a nice little cushy practice. And, but we continue to advance beyond that because we want to do something beyond that because making money is great, but you know, at some point you're making money gets kind of boring. Like, okay, we're all, CRNAs make good money. We all do, right? At some level or another, but we want to do something more than that. And that's how we've continued to evolve into serving, you know, different metro areas, large tertiary care hospitals down to AFCs and offices. Right. So now, you know, what I'm hearing from that and what my experience has been too, is the ultimate bottom line is, you know, how much work and sacrifice are you willing to put in to a get this thing off the ground and B make it more than it is the day you started it. I mean, you could have just had a little, you know, basically a company that provided staffing, a staffing company for little places around the Valley that just needed an extra set of hands on Wednesday or Thursday or, you know, and that's kind of, you know, that's kind of how you started off and you'd make a little side money at that, but you'd still be working full time. You know, you'd still be working anesthesia, but you know, it wouldn't kill you. You could financially do it because you could just charge those places cash and, and say, look, for a shift, this is what's going to cost you. You do the billing. That's one right. pathway that I think is important to differentiate. But there's, there's, there's three pathways going in order to create these companies. One is get a big loan or get investors, silent investors, and start off and move down the road of paying people and then collecting the billing mm-hmm. later, right? So that's the fee-for-service model, but you're paying up front. So you're betting on the return with a loan. That's one option people can do. Now you have to have a lot of things. You got to have a lot of capital mm-hmm. in the first place or assets in order to even get that loan. No one's given Mike and yeah. Joe anesthesia a company that started yesterday, a hundred thousand dollar loan for six months or a year. So that's one thing. The other thing, the other option is you go to these, this is the path of least resistance that I think a lot of people take is you effectively just become a 1099 guy who provides more 1099 guys where say, you know, the, the, Small business says, hey, we need Wednesday coverage mm-hmm. for this anesthesia service. We'll pay you $1,300 to, to bring someone in and do that. We'll do the billing. You'll, you'll give someone 1100 bucks for the day. You'll make 200 bucks as a VIG on providing right. the service. That, that's another option. That's the staffing company model, right? And there's a lot of people out there doing stuff like that sure. because it's the path least resistance with low cost of entry or no cost effectively of entry. Um, what makes that easy it's because that is really the only process. It's just getting contracts. But when you start to talk about what you're doing, which is going out there and, you know, at this point, you're in the business of keeping a bunch of money in your business account because the next contract might cost you $40,000 to start. So yeah. what people need to understand is that, you know, when you go out and get a contract where you're going to be billing anesthesia and then paying people, there's a whole lot of legwork that goes into that. You got to develop contracts and negotiate them, not just with the facility, but with Medicare, with, with commercial insurances. You got to get all your people credentialed in Medicare. And these things aren't free. You have to have a billing company. You're going to pay somewhere between five and 10% maybe to, you know, all these things come in and you got to have a practice administrator who's going to be making the phone calls to get people to cover. All these are costs, right? And I think it all sounds very easy to do until you sit down and hammer out what it costs to actually run a business. I mean, even things as simple as credit card fees and lockbox fees are things that no one knows about until they actually do it, but cost you tens of thousands of dollars a year, depending on the size of your business. It's a cost, right? And then you've got to have, of course, uh, a CPA, a real one that does all this stuff in a big company. You've got to have, um, uh, umbrella insurance to cover you for the, for the potential, you know, liability of the people who you are hiring. 
there's so many hidden costs. I think people just don't understand, you know, they have, they have no idea. Right. And there's, you know, the, the, the staffing and anesthesia, they're, they're really, even though obviously there's tremendous overlap and the practical of what they're doing, they're really two separate lines of business, two separate services, right? Because staffing is really a subcontract, basically a subcontract to the actual anesthesia contracts, right? And it comes with different sets of responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera. And I think a lot of it comes down to what you want to do, right? So we wanted to make an impact all in the specialty of anesthesia for our patients, right? But also on the industry as a whole and really to figure out how to do this MDC RNA thing better than anybody else has done, right? And you can't do that if you're a staffing company. You have to be an anesthesia company. So, um, so yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's different pathways to get there, different <laughs> uh, sets of uh, skills to manage it appropriately. And then how you evolve, right? Changes based on how, who you add to the team. I think if it was just me, I probably would have kept it somewhat boutique, a little bit smaller, um, easier to manage. But I, you know, as we added other people with different sets of skills, we realized our, we had a chance to make a big impact on things. So, uh, and that's what we're trying to do. And to do that, it's, it's a matter of how well we do all the things you mentioned. That's our competitive advantage, right? There's, there's a great example from, um, business world, which I like to share with people. GE in the, the two, the nine, the, excuse me, the 20th century, all the way through, uh, I don't know, about 2005 or so, um, was the most valuable, most well-run company in the world, right? It was this American marvel. It was awesome, right? Then Jack Welch the CEO left. And after that, it fell off this Dow Jones 500. It's one of the, it, it lost like 90% of its value, right? And the, the only difference or the major difference between those two scenarios was the quality of management, right? And when you have something like anesthesia, which isn't, I mean, there's some parts of anesthesia, which are a commodity, which means kind of, you know, any reasonable person can do it. There are some, there's a lot of judgment involved and decisions made at the local level. But in either case, the difference between a lot of these big groups is how well are they managed? How well are they are the providers and the company as a whole economically aligned, right? And if you have this massive tension between the people in your company, all the CRNAs and the MDs or the AAs, and the corporate company itself, well, that's not a recipe for success, right? That decreases your value. Um, so these are some of the business concepts that you know you and I never had in our CRNA program. And most of us don't have, right? But this is the stuff you get exposed to as you try to really build a professional services firm, whether it's anesthesia or accounting or law or whatever. All right. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a saying that you can modify for this when, when, when these companies, and I think you kind of, you kind of touched on at the beginning, when a company comes to you or a group or a, a facility and says, Hey, we need anesthesia services. Can you do it? You know, the answer is yes. What was the question? Because ultimately you've got to meet those services, right? right? You want to expand. You don't have to figure it out now. You just have to say, yes, we can do it and then figure it out and come back to them. And then, of course, the next phrase that goes with that, the answer is yes. You know, the answer is money. What was the question? Right. <laughs> you know, So right. it's a function of cost, right? And, uh, you know, that brings us into another thing I want to ask you about. You mentioned uh, how, you know, your, your company's all nurse anesthesiologists. It's all CRNAs. And then you've hired physicians down the road years later. What barriers to entry and for facilities did you find as a all- nurse anesthesiologist group trying to get contracts and dealing with administrators 
insurgents? So the barriers we experienced were both regulatory, um, culture-based, and uh, those are probably two main areas, right? So, because culture really, that's a super broad term, but regulatory-wise, if you are a tertiary care facility, a hospital, right? CMS regulations state, and a lot of people don't know this, that the director of the anesthesia or the anesthesia department must be under the, the overall direction of a physician. Now, we forget about that because in a lot of rural facilities, this isn't a big deal. The surgeon is the head of the department. He's the chief of you know surgical services, and the Department of Anesthesia is organized under that from a governance standpoint. And then the chief CRNA just runs the department, and it's basically a delegated authority, right? Um, when you get into larger hospitals, surgeons are not that accustomed to that role, right? They're, you know, they may have never worked with CRNAs before. So they're uncomfortable with that. And that was a significant barrier, right? So we had to either educate and get people comfortable with that. Or, like you said, you have to get uh, a physician in place who's on board with everyone maximizing their value, right? So that's, that was, so that's the regulatory part, and that touches over on the cultural part too, right? I wrote this article called, the or I wrote this uh, kind of coined this theme. It's certainly not a new theme. I think I just put some meat on the bone, so to speak, about this collaborative anesthesiology team. And the basis of that is everybody maximizing their value. It's a stark contrast from the anesthesia care team, which is from a, a physician trade organization, which really puts the RNAs in their place kind of in this almost comical way because they, they you know, basically the nurse anesthetist is, under the direct authority and delegatory power and any other power words you can insert here. <laughs> it's kind of how the, the document word is written. And it just flies in the face of reality. Right, it's I mean, political. It's inherently days. political. Yeah, yeah. It's just like when I read it, I'm just like, you're, you're just not paying attention. This is not how you secure the future, right? Which is part of their mission as an organization, which I think is uh, notable in and of itself. But anyway, as you're adding people, you know, if you get a contract for a large tertiary care facility, you have to work with the resources you have, right? And the truth is, you know, CRNAs and MDs, they're all licensed. They're just not the same, right? I've interviewed physicians for practices and they, they haven't done their own cases in decades or done a nerve block or really done anything other than bread and butter cases. That probably will not work if they're expected to play any kind of leadership role clinically, right? right. And then you might have, you know, speaking about MDs specifically, if you have an MD who's great clinically, but does not have communication and leadership skills, they are not going to be a person who's going to be leading the department, right? So you have to work with the, again, the players on the field, so to speak. And then the same, it's the same thing with CRNAs, right? I've done outpatient anesthesia primarily for the past five years, right? So if you have a contract and I'm in the subcontract market and you say, we need somebody in the heart room or the, you know, doing lung. I'm not your guy. I will not be raising my hand. (laughs) I will say I can be in there, but someone, I'm going to need a lot of resources, right? And this gets into the, the whole supervision thing, right? Because, you know, general supervision is normal in business world, right? You know, we all need mentorship or supervision of some sort. That is very different than statutory 100%. supervision in the law, right? That's, that's really a guild protection technique. It's an economic protection technique. And I, I think it's fair to say, and even a lot of physicians will go on record, in public, saying that these, these statutory supervision laws are just a way to protect and make sure that physicians have a job. And what it does do is it drives up costs and it inhibits competition. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, in this particular case, we're talking about physician anesthesiologists, not surgeons or other physicians for the purposes of this discussion. Correct. Oh, yeah. 
Absolutely. And that's why when I went in the physicians in our group or the physicians that uh, we, we speak with, we just say, look, everybody's got to be adding value, right? And, and you and I both kind of grew up in anesthesia and we've seen bad examples sure. where tougher guidelines are the policy, but they're not being followed, right? And or, um, you know, someone's hanging out and, and this is a comment about individuals, right? I'm not trying to denigrate a whole profession here, but it's not an uncommon thing to see somebody in the coffee lounge not being involved in difficult cases, right? But then we somehow extrapolate that into CRNAs are not capable. That's not good business. I'm in the business of maximizing value. That's what's good for our people who work with us. That's what's good for patients. And to do that, right, at a statutory or regular regulatory level, we need everybody to be able to do what they're trained to do, right? And then at the practice level, we figure out where the best people are, right? Now, I know your practice is like, Mike, you know, you, you're doing like basically everything, right? So a guy like you can walk in on day one and, and go anywhere, right? But if you're if we have a, a CRNA or an MD that's only done outpatient yep. work, which is an increasing number of people, right? Well, then they're probably not going to want to be in the hospital all alone when they're doing heart or, you know, bigger case coverage, right? You just have to play with your resources and, and make it work. That's, that's really what we're trying to do. You touched on something at the beginning there that I want to go back to, which is, you know, culture, right? So probably the most obstructive sentence in the English language is because that's the way we've always done things here. Uh-huh. And I think that um, in, in and over time, in everything, this is not just in healthcare, but just in this particular example in a facility, if all these surgeons and all of the administration and all of the staff have ever seen our physician anesthesiologist only care, and they've only, or they've only ever seen physician anesthesiologist with CRNAs acting in a much more subservient role, restricted role, right. then that's what they think is the norm or the standard. And so that's the way we've always done it here. When disruptive innovation comes into these places because of economics, because ultimately models change because of economic pressures and need to advance the access to care in a facility or be more flexible with the care, uh, you know, for less money. I mean, ultimately, it comes right down to that. And so, you know, these facilities want people who can work with them and expand all these things, but they don't want to pay through the nose for it. And unfortunately, you know, that's how these changes come about. And so when when those disruptive innovations happen, and a perfect example is the facility that you and I both worked at prior to going off on our own, where it was a facility for 30 some odd years, which is all physician anesthesiologists, but it was 90% Medicare. And, you know, these were the same group of people that had been there in the whole time. Good people. I met many of them. Mm-hmm. And but the problem was is they they just were not advancing care, weren't doing blocks for any orthopedic procedures at all you know patients often in pain and recovery they weren't they were getting more expensive right because they were asking for more subsidy every year because they felt they deserved a raise for the work they did they may or may not have that that part's irrelevant but the facility couldn't bear the cost right they were in the red and then in comes this one group who says yeah we're going to do it with all crnas and the next year they're literally a million dollars in the black because of that decision right that kind of stuff is really what drives these disruptive innovation changes. And now that facility, which arguably has the sickest patients in the entire state of Arizona, is basically run by CRNAs. And the outcomes are better. The pain controlled is better. Blocked, everything that can be blocked is blocked. Opioid sparing is the, is the name of the game. And everyone's looking to advance. And if someone isn't looking to advance, they remove those people. And so... 
you know, that ability to maintain quality, expand quality would never have existed if there wasn't a cost factor to begin with. And, and when that, when that all changed, it was essentially, it was forced upon the facility by administration because they simply couldn't bear the cost of this anymore. So when that all turned around and changed, you ended up with a lot of surgeons going, you know, given the side eye to these CRNAs who they've met, never met before. Because for 30 years, it had all been physicians. Mm-hmm. A lot of OR nurses, OR techs, PACU nurses, pre-op nurses, not sure if they should even talk to these people. Like, are these the people you talk to or now do I go to the surgeon? You know, that change is very, very difficult. Yeah. And that's the other thing when you're looking at contracts and you're taking over a contract and you're changing a model like you've done um, and like many others have done. Uh, the first six months is going to be an uphill battle of PR, right? So you want the very best people doing the very best work, and that's still not going to be good enough for six months because you're not my friends that I saw for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Right. And that's another hurdle. That's part of the cultural shift that's occurring. And look, the bottom line is, is that no matter how you get to, to becoming an anesthesia professional, the outcomes are the same. And, you know, there are good people and bad people in both professions. There are incredibly talented, incredibly smart, and people who are not so great in both professions. But the outcomes are the same. So we're not talking about safety here. We're talking about cultural change, which is the biggest hurdle to turning a model from an inefficient, cost-ineffective, uh, limited, limited and lack of flexibility practice with, you know, CRNAs who can't go and start a case because if the physician anesthesiologist isn't standing there when you push the propofol, then, oh my God, the world is going to fall down or you're committing billing fraud if you're under medical direction. Right. So, you know, th- those, that is an inflexible and inoperable model. It, it really is archaic and there's no place for it today. And it's slowly kind of shifting out. Well, and that's what, that's where the data, that's what the data showing, right? We, it, from 2017 and 2021 is going to have an update showing an even greater uptick uh, as per the people I've spoken with in QZ billing, which is either independent and or autonomous level right. care where you have kind of a, an autonomous mat- uh, model or a CAT model, as I would call it. Right, exactly. Um, yeah. And I think we're no, seeing you that you shift more. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I think increasingly, right? And I think that's why business of anesthesia is a popular topic. There's a lot of small firms that are... Uh, growing out there and people say, well, the Envisions and the USAPs of the world are going to grab up everything, but this is on a cycle, right? In the 90s, we saw similar patterns yeah. and, you know, these big companies grow, they, they turn, turns out they're not very well managed, they break off and the cycle begins again. A couple of thoughts on, on that transition that you just mentioned. First, you mentioned cost. A lot of folks will say, well, cost shouldn't be a factor, right? Well, if cost wasn't a factor, then every single patient would have your astronaut, surgeon, MD, triple board certified person for every single procedure for every single anesthetic. The most expensive equipment. Right. right. We'd all be driving Teslas every day, right? If we didn't have some measure of cost. The cost is reality. It's just a matter of where do we maximize the value, right? You talked about the change in the contract and you're right. That is not an easy thing to do. And that's where, you know, adding people to your group that have people skills, which is you know, not talked about so much in our world because we're so clinically oriented and we're dealing with airways and critical moments, right? But people skills, the ability to relate, the ability to actually communicate, that is the X factor, man. And if you, if you don't have that, it's much more costly um, 
to get involved with someone like that, right, than it is just not to have a contract. And I know that as someone who's, you know, had to have the difficult conversations and say, you know, like, you're not a good fit uh, group anymore. And that ends part one of my discussion with uh, Dr. Joe Rodriguez. We'll also get into more information about the business of anesthesia on part two. Thanks for listening and come back for the second part. That's all for this episode of Anesthesia Deconstructed. For more information based on today's discussion, be sure to visit us at anesthesia-deconstructed.com. You'll also gain access to our blogs, editorials, and more resources to keep you updated on the science, politics, and realities of today's medical industry. That's anesthesia-deconstructed.com. 